All right. Good morning. A little extra because we missed a week, right? Have you ever been in a situation where God seems far away? Where things seem to go from bad to worse? What if there was a book of the Bible that never once mentioned the name of God, nor records a single prayer? Would God still be there? Today we visit a book where God is seen in every scene, but only indirectly and obliquely. Today we start our series in Esther, a book purposefully pregnant with the providence of God. And friends, providence is the most encouraging doctrine we tend to forget. Turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Esther. And if you don't have a copy of Scripture here with you, you can grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you and on page 519, you shall find the book of Esther. 519, the book of Esther. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You as we journey through the story of Your work in the world, in the world of Esther, in a pagan world, in a difficult world, in a world where much was going wrong, and many were seeking to seemingly snuff out Your people and Your praise. We pray that we would see how Your unseen hand is at work every single Sunday in this five-sermon series. We pray that we would become more confident that what we do not see does not mean that You are not there, but very often Your providential placement of the individual is pivotal to the story of Your glory that's going to unfold. And we thank You for being a God who can work all things for good. That even what man needs for evil, You can use for good. That even what seems inconsequential can be absolutely essential. Help us to see the unseen King in the pages of this Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now friends, the book of Esther is a long book. Uh, multiple chapters. We're going to be looking at four chapters today. We'll be looking at some of those chapters again in some of the other series. Uh, but I'm going to read all four chapters, so, so hang with me. The Word of God says in Esther, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, which Ahasuerus? The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. That is, king of Persia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. For all of his officials and servants, and the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces, provinces were there before him. And he showed the riches of his royal, royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. For 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast. So after 180 days of celebration, there's a, there's a, a longer uh, special time. And both the great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver, and a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, a mother of pearl and precious stones, and, and drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. 
And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king has given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded uh, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zathar, and Sarkis, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But the queen, Vashti, refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Adamantha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsina, and Mamukhan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. And this is what they said. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? And then Mamukin said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus in his vast empire. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. And so if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written amongst the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will be given honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. And so he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province and to its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak accordingly to the language of his people. Chapter 2. All right, so after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated over Vashti, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, you know, let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Ashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, and he was the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah, 
That is Esther in our story. Hadassah was her Jewish name. The daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the charge of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Don't tell anybody you're Jewish, is what he's saying. Verse 11, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem in the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of another official, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not go in to see the king ever again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Verse 15, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and his servants, and it was Esther's feast. It was also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So everyone was to be happy, no taxes and special stuff, and the king is happy, and he's got a new bride, and everyone's happy. Now, verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together in the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. Nobody knew she was a Jew. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry. And they sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus. There was a palace coup and somebody was going to kill the king. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai the Jew. And, and so he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, And when the affair was investigated and found to be true, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the presence of the king. So Mordecai the Jew has saved the king from assassination. Chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why did you transgress the king's command? 
And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, and so they they made known to him the people of Mordecai, and Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, this vast Persian empire. And in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, "Uh, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. So these are bad people, they don't follow you, and I'll pay to have them terminated. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, meaning you don't have to spend your own money. And the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. Go ahead, destroy them. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples into every province in its own script and every people in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's own signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Edar, which is where he had been casting lots to determine when to do this wicked thing, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman, they sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion because, well, a genocide order had just been given, and the clock was ticking before the Jews would be perishing. Chapter 4, our last chapter we'll look at this morning. When Mordecai learned, Mordecai the Jew, learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, a sign of great mourning, and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and with a loud and bitter cry he wept. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes throughout the empire. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was greatly distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai. She didn't know what was going on. All she knew was that Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes and you should never appear at the king's gate in such a manner. And so she had her attendants send garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. He risked the public uh, breach of decorum. Then Esther called for this man, circle his name, Hathak, Hathak. 
one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Why would Mordecai do this when it may cost him his life? And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Queen Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with the king on behalf of her people, the Jews. Remember, the king doesn't even know that she's Jewish. And Hathak went and he told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside of the inner court without being summoned, there is but one law to be put to death, except that the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in the king for these 30 days. What, what she means is, there's a rule. You can't come to the king without being summoned. If you come to the king without being summoned, and he doesn't extend his royal scepter, meaning I'll take your uninvited interruption, then you're to be executed and it doesn't matter who you are. And it prevented a lot of the petty things from happening in the king's court. He would deal with only what he wanted to deal with. It was efficient. It was brutally efficient. And it applied to the queen. And she's like, look, if I go and appear before the king and he doesn't extend his scepter, they're going to kill me anyway. And number two, the king hasn't asked for me in quite a while. See, she was really exciting when she was really exciting, but now the king is no longer as excited. So this was a scary thing for Esther to go before the king unannounced. Verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And so Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Remember, he has to do all this through a go-between because he can't enter the royal harem. He has to stand outside and go to this man, Hathak, who then is a eunuch, who then goes in and speaks. So there's all this happening between an intermediary. And Mordecai says, I want you to say this to Queen Esther. Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from some other place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat and do not drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast and then I will go to the king. I will risk my life. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. All right, so from these four Spirit-inspired chapters, we shall observe four practical principles that we must remember when our world is spinning out of control. And we wonder, well, where is God in all this garbage? Esther's answer is for us to remember God's providence in all events. No matter how bleak things appear, God is always at work, and His plan is always advancing, even if it is imperceptible to our eyes at a particular moment. God's plan is always advancing. As we encounter iniquity, if we discount God's sovereignty, we will get jittery. Show me a saint who forgets how big God is, and I'll show you a saint who quakes when things look bad. 
If we don't grasp God's providence in all events, well then instead of being full of hope and joy and peace, we will become dejected, discouraged, and downright depressed. Have you met saints where they see the problem bigger than the God who's bigger than the problem? And so let's review what God can do from a story that shouldn't work out the way that it does if there was no God. God's providence is the most encouraging doctrine we tend to forget. Boy, if you can get your arms around the providence of God, you can fly through just about any season and any storm. So the first point we see today from our passage is this. Number one, God is at work even in deplorable situations. God is at work even in deplorable situations. In our text today, God is going to use a thoroughly deplorable situation to produce salvation even when God's people faced utter, total, merciless annihilation. Well, it doesn't get much more deplorable than that, does it? God brings salvation in the face of annihilation. Because, friends, God is at work even in the most deplorable of situations. Our story starts with a perverted Persian potentate uh, who most of us know by his Greek name, Xerxes. But his Hebrew name is Ahasuerus. So the Jews don't call him Xerxes typically. They call him Ahasuerus. That was the Jewish name for this Persian king. And Ahasuerus is probably the most powerful person in the world at the time of this story. Ahasuerus rules, the Bible says, from India to Ethiopia. That would be on the ancient maps. On our maps, it would be the geography from Pakistan to the Sudan. A vast, massive empire of wealth and power. His empire was so large, he had to subdivide it into 127 provinces just to govern it between all the language and alliances and loyalties and challenges and geography, 127 people to govern it. Ahasuerus' empire was so enormous, it was so prosperous, that he had not one, not two, not three, but four royal palaces. He had Babylon, he had Ecbatana, he had Persepolis, and he had Susa, his winter residence. And so our book begins with Ahasuerus in his winter residence, and he's in the great citadel in Susa which itself is a commanding presence. Uh, the citadel of Susa has a wall that towers 72 feet high above the city and is a mile and a half in perimeter. It's imposing. And you see it from far away. And chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us this. In the third year of the king's reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, and the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of the pomp of his greatness for many days. How many days? 180 days. How many months is that? Six months. And when these days were... So after six months of showing off to his entire empire and calling all these people in, after six months of this, when those days were the completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven more days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So 180 days of, of ostentatious and outrageous pomp and circumstance and splendor followed by seven days of empire-wide feasting. Now why? That's really expensive. 
Well, Ahasuerus became king in 486 B.C. And in the first two years, because this is the third year the Scripture says, in the first two years, history tells us there were two revolts that tried to take him out as king, and he put down both the revolts, and now it was clear his reign was secure. He was now definitely in charge of all that vast empire of the Persians. All right? Now, now that his reign is secure, those first two years were rocky, he's established himself, now he wants to attend to his legacy. He wants to make a name for himself. He wants to outshine his father. And so Xerxes looks, how do I make my legacy? How do I make my mark on history? And his father was Darius the Great. And when your dad's name is Great, you got some shoes to fill, right? And so he has some daddy issues. And his daddy tried twice to conquer Europe and failed. And so he thought, you know how I can secure my legacy? I'll conquer Europe. And so Ahasuerus desperately wants to attain what his father the Great could never do. The historian Herodotus, whose annals tell us much of this period of history, explains that Ahasuerus planned to take over all of Europe, reducing what he knew as the whole world to his empire. He already controlled the Middle East and part of Africa. Everywhere he knew on a map, he wanted to control. So to pull off this audacious plot, Ahasuerus needs to get his generals and his other officials on sides with this massive, risky endeavor. He needed to persuade them that a second attempt at greatness would not leave the Persian Empire in utter weakness as it had with Dad twice. And so he had to demonstrate that this proposed conquest was neither foolishness nor madness. And so Ahasuerus the proud he knew how to seduce his satraps, his governors. And he thought, I'll put on a wanton display of royal power and wealth and splendor, and they will be so overawed at my ability that they will go along for greater glory. Well, why 180 days? Well, that's simple. If you have an empire that stretches from Pakistan to the Sudan in an era before trains, planes, automobiles, internet, telegraphs, telephones, and you want to rotate in every important official, general, noble, satrap, and you brought them all in at one day, the empire would crumble in an instant. And so it took six months of calling everybody in from every far flung, every general, everybody of importance, everybody he needed to be on sides. It took six months to call them in, to make sure you got their ear around a beer in the night. Ahasuerus was lewd and crude, but he was also quite shrewd. He planned to dazzle this important gaggle. Look at verse 6. He has them come to his winter residence, and there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple. That's no accident, friend. The, the, the white and violet were the royal colors of the Persian Empire. And if you lived in a world where everything was earth tone, you walked past the earth tones, you wore earth tones, you ate food that was earth tone, you went everywhere and it was, and there's this sparkling white and the royal violet. That's, that got your attention. That's Vegas, baby, in the ancient world. Now, these emblems of national sovereignty were affixed to what? They were affixed to pure silver rods. And marble pillars. It's the best the world had as well. Everything in this deal was first class. You reclined, the Scriptures say, on couches made of gold and silver. I don't think they were very comfortable, but they sure were flashy. Elvis would be impressed. He'd make his bathroom look like that, right? 
And so your sandal feet that were tired from, from some far-flung outpost of the empire you were stuck serving in, you came in and you stood upon when you entered this place. The Bible says a mosaic pavement of, of glittering porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones, and that was the floor. Wow. The floor. And then your thirst was slacked, the Bible says, verse 7, with drinks in golden vessels. It wasn't a solo cup. It was a golden goblet. And, and then the Bible says that no two of these were basically alike. They were all different kinds. Um, uh, these important guests drank from bespoke pieces made by the finest artisan. Impressed yet? That was his goal. Not only was the setting superior to anything any of them had ever seen, but the royal wine, the Bible says, was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict. Now, you pay attention to this. There was no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. That was really rare whenever you attended a royal banquet. Normally, when you went to one of these deals, you drank only when the king drank. If he rose his glass, you got to drink. If you were thirsty, you just had to politely wait until he drank. And every time he drank, you drank. You better hope he wasn't a drunkard. Some kings would lift their glass so much to get people drunk, so then he would make negotiate treaties while you're drunk. They were, they were clever. They were ancient, but they weren't stupid. But not this time. For 120, uh, 180 days, all the movers and all the shakers on two continents came, and they took in the splendor and the grandeur and the pageantry of Ahasuerus' greatness, and they could drink their fill as liberally or as judiciously as they desired, not as the king demanded. That was unusual. Now, the drunks loved it, didn't they? An open bar with bespoke goblets. This is the party to be at. And those who got high on individuality, who, who didn't like having to drink every time the king drank, well, they liked that they could just lift their glass whenever they felt like it. And everybody felt pretty empowered in front of the powerful. And the high society wives who arrived with their powerful general or official on their arm, they got in on the hobnobbing too. The Bible says in verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, there was strict decorum in the ancient court. The wives were safely situated in their own part of the palace, away from the prying eyes of the men. Why is that? Well, uh, a room full of drunken men of rank and privilege was no place for a princess or governess, was it? But then, verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was drunk, he commanded Mahuman and Bistha and Harbona and Bigtha and Agatha and Zathar and Sarkis and all those other names that are hard to pronounce, and the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, verse 11, to bring his queen, to bring Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And so in the ultimate display of power, when the king was well lubricated from much wine, in a final display of ostentatiousness, the king summoned the most beautiful treasure he possessed to come before his guests that he was desperately trying to impress. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged. He's already drunk, and his anger burned within him. Now, why did Vashti refuse? You've got to remember, the Persian potentate was an all-powerful monarch. He had a massive harem, 
And he could get another wife on a whim. She could be deposed with no problem. Why defy Ahasuerus the arrogant in his most important moment? It would seem this is because in his drunken state he was demanding something utterly unseemly. The word for feast in Ezra, uh, Esther 1.3 is the word mishte. And mishte literally means it was a drinking party. It was a drinking party. And after 180 days, six months of drinking parties, on the final night of the bawdiest seven-day culmination of celebration, when the king was full of the kind of good judgment utter inebriation offers, the Talmud's interpreters tell us that Vashti was asked to come out not just in her royal crown, but very probably in just her royal crown. You see, Vashti isn't her name. Vashti means beautiful. It means the best. Her legal name was Amstris. And Amstris was so beautiful that the drunken king wanted all of his officials to know in his drunken state what a beautiful treasure he had, and they did not. It was the coup de grace bring her out in just her crown. But instead of his power and privilege being affirmed and confirmed, the king is made to squirm. For Ahasuerus is rebuffed in his own home by his own queen. So much for being sovereign over empires. You can't control your own household. And so the king is enraged. And his advisors realize that once word gets out that the queen doesn't even listen to the king, why should the army? Why should anybody? So I want you to look at verse 15. Damage control, damage control, damage control. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? And then Mamukin said in the presence of the kings of the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women. We're all going to have a problem at home when we find the queen doesn't obey the king. Causing them to look at their own husbands with contempt, since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath aplenty. And so if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, let it be written amongst the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And this advice pleased the angry drunken king and the princess, and the king did as the fellow proposed. Okay, so now he's shown his dominance over his palace. And instead of God's plan for headship being through the servant leadership of the husband, you have misogyny to the nth degree. And it is now the literal law of the land, the irrevocable law of the Medes and the Persians. It's gone out by the king's demand to the farthest reaches of the empire. And that brings us to chapter 2, which starts innocuously if you don't know history. But boy, if you know history... Something really interesting is about to happen. The Bible says, after these things, 
You ought to circle those three words because they're pregnant with meaning. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, the casual reader who doesn't well know Scripture or history, it would seem that maybe just a couple days have, have transpired that she is no longer queen and suddenly we're at the next chapter. But that's not how it actually reads. History tells us three years have transpired. That after these things is a three-year period. Ahasuerus, you see, is famous in history for two things. He's famous for the building of the royal palace at Persepolis and for his ignominious defeat at the hands of the Greeks. You see, despite rallying almost 200,000 Persian troops, despite dispatching almost 10,000 of his elite immortals, Xerxes will lose spectacularly against the numerically sparse Spartans, famously. And then there's the battle of Thermopylae, where it all comes undone. And it's the beginning of the end, because his invasion force is not only soundly defeated at Thermopylae, but then it is utterly defeated at Plataea. And then his entire navy is sunk at the battle of Salmis, and he's no more a world threat after these things. In the transition from chapter 1, powerful to chapter 2, humble. Ahasuerus had his war. And instead of ruling the world, he had to retreat in defeat, never again to launch another attempt. And the three years so compactly stated as after these things, in verse 1, signify the return of a, of a battered, beaten braggart who is now without his beautiful bride and source of pride to salve his fragile ego because of his own stupid edict in chapter 1. That's the after these things. You see in the picture? And so his advisors have to think quickly. How do we cheer up Hagar the Horrible, our boss? Well, what is he like? He's a pervert. We can go with that. Let's have a Miss Persia contest that ends every night in conquest until the king finds the one he likes best and makes her queen. And we can give the whole thing a rest. And that's just what we see in verse 2 of chapter 2. And then the king's young men. So who came up with the plan? Was it his seasoned advisors? Who was the young men? Sounds like a young man's plan, doesn't it? And the king's young men who attended him said, let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa at the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Ashti. And this pleased the king and he did so. Friends, leave it to the young men to come up with such a frat house solution. Right? and leave it to a lecherous, misogynist monarch to implement it. Which is how Esther finds her way to the throne, isn't it? She's taken. She didn't sign up for this. As are scores of beautiful ladies throughout the empire. And, and the critical criteria for queenship is just that they be beautiful, young, and a virgin. That's it. That's all he wants. And after being inspected and selected, they're put through a year-long cosmetic regime to enhance their beauty, culminating with each woman being forced to spend one night with the king. And then she will live out all the rest of her days essentially as a widow in the harem where no one else will ever see her again. Unless 
the king remembers her name and says, you can come back. Some of them will get to jockey to be queen. So she has a shot at the crown. And yet in the midst of all this, God will save His people from Haman's hatred. For God is at work even in the most deplorable of situations. Don't be despondent if the situation is deplorable. God's providence extends there as well. God is able to work all things for the good of those who love Him. Even what man means for evil, God can use for good. So says the Scripture. So, so the question becomes, well, Sean, what about when the highest halls of government are unrighteous? What then? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that pivots me well to the second truth. So thanks for working with me. All right, The second truth from our passage is this. God is at work even in the highest halls of unrighteous governments. God is at work even in the highest halls of unrighteous governments. Depending on your political leanings. So, you know, God saves people irrespective of their political leanings. Depending on your political leanings, if the red candidate or the blue candidate gets elected, some, think, some saints think God's plan is upended. Some saints think if, if this or that pervert is in power, and we've had perverts from both colors and both parties... <laughs> They think that, well, then God's plan must be in the trash can. And yet the Persian pervert par excellence was in power. And, and God would use a messy public divorce and a wicked way to wed as the way to save Israel from annihilation, wouldn't He? And it would be the Persian pervert potentate who would ultimately prevent the destruction of God's people. Who would have ever guessed that? Because God is at work in deplorable situations. And God can work through the most unrighteous of governments. You need to remember that. Sometimes saints worry not about their own leaders. They worry about some other leader. What if China is ascending? What if Russia is posturing? What if North Korea is going nuclear? What if Iran is arming our enemies? In those moments, you need to know this. There was a pagan potentate who was head of state, and yet God used him to prevent the madness of Haman's hatred from happening. Just as God used Pharaoh. Pharaoh incubated the Israelite nation as they grew from 75 souls who came in a famine to the millions released in the Exodus. And it was under the pagan Pharaoh. Not, only, not always under his favor, but under his military power, so nobody snuffed them out. God used a pagan man named Darius, do you remember from our last book, to release the captives so God's people could rebuild the temple of God. That was a pagan king named Darius. You're going to see later when we get to the book of Nehemiah in a few weeks that God will use a pagan king named Artaxerxes to send Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I don't know how many of you remember the 80s, but there used to be a watermelon-smashing comedian. Do you remember him? His name was Gallagher. Do you remember him? The Sledgematic. And Gallagher said this, and I was about eight years old, but forgive me if I don't get it quite right, but if pro is the opposite of con, and progress means to move forward, what does Congress mean? It's always stuck with me. Friends, if the Senate is shut down, and the White House is an outhouse instead of a beacon of freedom, if some distant foe is ascending and your heart is panicking, 
remember this. God is at work. Even in the highest halls of unrighteous governments, and His perfect plan is ticking along just fine. Now, sometimes it's not just the event that scares us. But often it's the timing of that event. They seem random. Well, this does, God can't have this. This just came out of nowhere. Or it's the fact that the event is particularly odious. That, boy, this couldn't come at a worse time. And that brings you to principle three you need to put your arms around this morning. God is at work in the specific timing of seeming tragedies. God is at work in the specific timing even of seeming tragedies. Turn with me to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. And I want you to pay particular attention to the timing of verse 12. Esther 3, verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Might want to underline that. The 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and over all the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. And it was written in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring and letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with destructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. When? On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder the goods. Haman was not content with homicide. He was seeking total genocide. He didn't want to kill Mordecai. He wanted to kill every Jew he ever knew. It was not enough to murder Mordecai. Haman wanted to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, men and women, in one day. And on a particular day at that. Now, when is this edict issued, friends? The king's scribes were summoned when? Ah, I'm going to have to send you to remediation when it comes to participation. It's like Church of the Mute. Let's try again. Okay, so the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Friends, do you understand? This is the day before the Jews celebrate the Passover. The Passover is the 14th day of the first month, and this issue to kill everybody is issued the day before Passover. So on the eve of commemorating God's great act of redemption, Satan seeks to silence the people's praise by filling them with fear of utter, imminent annihilation. Doesn't want a single saint praising God for God's redemption, wants him quaking about their pending annihilation. Satan doesn't want God's people full of joy. He doesn't want God's people full of peace. Satan does not want us praising God for His goodness to us in the past, and so he will try to scare us in the present with whatever version of annihilation he can conjure at that moment. Friends, God sent His people in Joshua's day to cross the Jordan River. And He did it when the river was at its most dangerous at full flood stage. Do you remember that? And then when they crossed the river, when they crossed the river and got to the side where the bad guys were, that's when God said, circumcise all your army. The better place to circumcise your army is across the swollen river. <laughs> Not when you're sitting waiting to be killed and your men can't fight for several days because they're incapacitated. But God said, cross the river at flood stage when it was hardest. And then when you get there, now He says, circumcise everybody. And then when they healed, the Bible says in Joshua 5.10, that was the 14th of Nisan the day of the Passover, when they were healed. And because they were now circumcised, they could partake of the Passover. God had moved all of human history so that they crossed the river, not just when it was hardest, but when it would put them where they needed to be to do the Passover. God did that. 
And it was entirely God's doing. The Jews had no orchestration. It was God saying, move here, move now, do this. God is in charge of timing. And so it is with God's providence with us. Romans 5, 6 says, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At Christ's crucifixion, as the sky grew dark and the earth quaked and all must have seemed utterly lost to those dejected disciples, God's providential timing for Christ's sacrificial atoning was happening exactly as God intended for it to be. I want you to know this. God is at work in the specific timing even of seeming tragedies. We don't always know the whys of a certain event, but God's providential timing is always happening somewhere in that event. So in times of calamity, in times of tragedy, I have learned to not focus on the why, but on the who. Every Christian I've met, when things come into their life that turn their life upside down, they focus on the why, they get derailed. They get depressed. They get disrupted. Every Christian I've met, when the things fall apart and they look to Jesus, they're able to walk with Jesus and even do ministry for Jesus while the world around them is coming to pieces. Friends, I want to tell you in these times, don't focus on the whys, focus on the whos, and somewhere along the way, the grace of God will speak to you and you will learn the what. What am I supposed to do in this pivotal moment when the world is coming apart? When I have cancer, and it isn't the answer that I wanted to hear, but now I can testify to Jesus with a new strength because people know I have nothing else in it. Like instead of cursing God and dying, I'm praising God as I'm dying. Focus not on the why. God never promises in Scripture He will tell you the why this side of heaven or in heaven. Focus on the who. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. One of the first things I did as your pastor is we put that on the sign out front because we will never outgrow fixing our eyes on Jesus. Amen? Focus on the who. Then listen for the what. And if God wants to reveal the why, that's just gravy. You know, some saints have done this in human history. One of those saints, when everything fell apart in his life, he wrote this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the New Testament, you have one who wrote this, Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in our afflictions that we may be able to comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. Perhaps God has put you in this experience so you can help someone walk with Jesus who would panic if they didn't have a brother who was steady, who had been there. I don't know, but I know he's done that a lot, amen? Lastly, our final point, we're almost done. I want you to tattoo this final point in your brain. Squirrel it away so you can have access to it every time the enemy tries to deceive you. Our last point is this. God is at work in the small stories that we tend to bypass. God is at work in the small stories that we easily bypass. I want you to look at chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came to her, the queen was deeply distressed, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, and be, uh, but he would not accept them. And here it is. Then Esther called for Hathak. And I ask you to circle Hathak because that's important. One of the king's eunuchs 
who had been appointed to attend to Esther in order to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him what happened. I'm Jewish, and the Jews are being killed, and the queen is Jewish, and you better tell her. And Hathak could have said, I'm not getting involved. It doesn't pertain to me. And Hathak went and he told Esther what Mordecai had said. He told the truth. He's the only man in the world who could have delivered this message. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for these 30 days. Uh, Fox's job is to protect Esther, not the Jews. And when we read of Esther's story, and we read of God's grand plan to save His people, I think we can easily miss this servant named Hathak, and I don't want you to. Hathak had no family, and that was by design. He was one of the king's eunuchs. He was, he was one of the officials who was over the ladies. And in the ancient world, if you put someone over your harem, you castrated him so that he didn't get involved with those ladies. And he would never try to usurp you. Most of the high-ranking officials would also have this situation so they wouldn't have any heirs, so they wouldn't try and overtake you. So here's Esther, and she can't leave the harem. She can't see the one she loves that raised her when her parents died. There's Mordecai. He's in distress. He's wearing the signs of distress. He's putting his own life at risk, appearing before the king's gate in distress. And so somebody had to be a go-between between these two people, a trusted courier. And God made a man, Hathak, Hathak would learn of the queen's nationality, something hidden, apparently, for this eventuality. If Hathak did not send Mordecai's messenger to Esther, she would never know of the peril of her people. She would be utterly unaware in the insular isolation of the king's sequestered harem. And so far, I want you to notice this in the story. We've, we've looked at four chapters, about half the book. Everybody in this book is a dirty dog doing dirty deeds, aren't they? like some kind of ACDC song. <laughs> but, but here it is. All right, uh, I get a lot of ACDC references at Calvary. I know you're going to track with me there. Uh, so far in the book of Esther, everyone is a dirty, rotten scoundrel. The king's seven older, mature advisors seek to salve the king's rage by deep misogyny throughout the empire. Remember that? Chapter 1. The king's younger attendants uh, seek to slack the king's sullen defeat and loneliness by enslaving a betty of beauties to a life of harem imprisonment so the king can have a series of intimate moments culminating in whatever strikes his fancy. You even have Haman, and he's not been a great guy. Haman lies and schemes, right? He's a bad, 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 bad guy in the story. And he wants his own personal vengeance and is willing to commit genocide. Then you have the two Jews. And really, to be honest, they haven't been great either. You've got Mordecai and Esther, and at a minimum, they're economic with their identity. They're lying liars from Liarville, right? Born politicians, some might say. Anyway, so yet in this pagan palace of the perverted Persian potentate among the men who've been castrated, who themselves have been enslaved to a life of service, uh, to, to, to look over the king's sexual slaves, uh, sits a single soul for such a time as this. God put him there. And he can be trusted with a message of life and death. And that message is ultimately used of God to save all of God's people. And this is so often how God works in our world, isn't it? God uses the obscure to do the things that endure. 
If you read church history, it is these nobody people that became somebody because they stood up for Jesus. And that's why they're in history. They weren't impressive. Warren Wearsby reminds us, hey, what was the name of the boy who gave Jesus the fishes and the loaves that fed the multitudes? Well, Scripture never says. Uh, who were the men who rescued Paul by risking their own lives to set Paul down in a basket in Damascus? And the answer is, we don't know. Scripture never says. What was the name of the little servant girl who told Naaman to go see the Hebrew prophet that he would be healed of his leprosy? And the answer is, we don't know. Scripture never says. I want to tell you something, friends. Great doors swing on small hinges. Great doors swing on small hinges. Hinges we seldom notice and we never celebrate. But the door of opportunity over the threshold of redemptive history hinges on these vital, valuable, seemingly invisible acts of faithfulness. I want you to be that pivotal hinge for Jesus this year, this summer. Even if no one else but Jesus ever notices that you were a pivotal hinge, quietly squeaking, don't discount your pivotal place in the story of God's glory because God is at work in the small stories we usually easily bypass. Just as God is at work in deplorable situations, just as God is at work in the highest halls of unrighteous governments, just as God is at work in the specific timing of seeming tragedy, so too it is true that God is at work in the small stories that we easily bypass. Have you ever heard anyone ever tell you to be a thought. Let's end our time together today thanking the Lord for His providence amongst us. Lord Jesus, we come to You this morning as we look at this book. And for many of us, it's a book we don't know well. I asked a man who was uh, in a very prominent position in ministry over a large institution used of You to train men. And I said, tell me everything you know about the Feast of Purim. And three sentences later, he was done. And the Feast of Purim comes from the book of Esther. I have a suspicion that the people of God are largely ignorant of your work in certain parts of Scripture. And so I pray that you would shed great light to our church, but also to those who might listen in. We know we have folks that listen in Zimbabwe and France and Ukraine and South Africa. We know we have college students. We pray, Lord Jesus, that the church would remember a God who is so sovereign that His providence extends to the mundane and the deplorable, to the small and to the timing of even the tragedy. And Lord, help us to be hinge people in 2018. Help us this summer, this week, this year to, to be part of the story of Your glory by turning to the left and to the right when You tell us by being led by Your still small voice, by keeping in step with Your Spirit, by, by hiding Your Word in our heart that we might not sin against You. Lord, we're mindful that the psalmist says that the, uh, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn getting ever brighter till the fullness of day. And so, You give us just enough light that we don't stumble or leave the path. But as we walk Your path consistently, 
It is though the sun rises and we begin to see why you took us that way, why you gave us that leading, why you gave us that job, that inclination, that talent, that skill, why this hard thing happened so that we would be positioned to help this other person who desperately needs to know about the grace and love and strength and hope in Jesus in their hard thing that's happening to them. Let us not waste our opportunity. Let us not waste even our pain. But let us invest for Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.